it really starts with having a clear understanding of what the problem is and why is it a problem. Many other things start to become much more clear when you start there. Nobody really foreshadowed that COVID-19 would happen right now. It's making it more competitive. Welcome to the Supply Chain Show, featuring compelling interviews with remarkable supply chain leaders. Listen in as our guests share their learnings and insights on today's supply chain challenges. I'm your host, Crystal Lee, a principal consultant with Oliver White, teaching companies to transform their business, achieve mind-blowing financial results, and dramatically improve the lives of their employees. This week as our guest, we have Mishak Cleary, Global Director of PSYOP and Material Management at SPX Flow. I appreciate you having me. It's great being here. I've been with SPX Flow for about a year, a little over a year, but I've been in manufacturing supply chain for a little over 15 years. So I'm responsible for materials management and PSYOP, which essentially means that delivery and inventory are the two metrics that my team is most accountable for. Um, you know, in the space of materials management and PSYOP, we have a, a global organization and, and each of those plants um, have a materials management organization that's responsible for the planning and procurement processes. And then centrally, I have a PSYOP team that that's really sits in the center of the commercial team and the manufacturing and operations team. And their, their entire function is around coordinating demand and supply um, and ensuring that we're able to take the right insights from the customer and plan proactively to be able to support those customers. I actually grew up in Bronx, New York, then you know moved around the country, starting with college in, at Temple. I, I went to college at Temple for mechanical engineering, and you know, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it, but I, but I knew that I always enjoyed um, you know, understanding how things worked, and I, and, and I would uh, fix things and take things apart, sometimes uh, for the better and sometimes for the worse, but it, it was all learning in the end. And, and as I got into my junior year of college, I realized that I needed an internship in my major. And so through a local organization um, that's actually a, a national organization, but the local chapter of, of NSBE, National Society of Black Engineers, I, I went to their conference in Anaheim, California, and I, and I met General Electric. I, I met um, some leaders from Harley-Davidson, Hewlett-Packard, and some of the other top companies at the time. And I got a few internship opportunities, and I decided to go with General Electric. So that's really where my career started. You know, growing up in New York, I, I didn't know anything about how things were made. We don't we don't make things in New York. We just uh, <laughs> we just we just buy them, may, maybe distribute them at times, but um, we don't really manufacture a lot in New York. And so, you know, I didn't have a great appreciation of how things were made. Um, but but I did know that you know this GE was a great company, and and this is an opportunity that I wanted to take on and learn a little bit more. So, you know, I started my my career as a, as a junior, you know, going into my senior year as an intern in Salisbury, North Carolina, and um, I actually interacted with a leader at the time who, you know, came back as a plant manager and, you know, that, that leader really took me under his wing. So he, he taught me a lot about manufacturing. He started to teach me about the metrics and, you know, the thing that stood out to me was the balance um, between sort of technical process and the people side. So, you know, I, I, I really, my first exposure to manufacturing supply chain was really around, um, you know, this balance between, you know, leading people and leading processes. And, and that's really what I fell in love with. Um, you know, during that summer, it was actually a challenging time for the plant. The leader was in the middle of a union campaign, actually. And, and he just came back to the site on the, you know, the, the VPs of, of that division asked him to come back to the site to really re regain trust in the workforce. And, you know, in the middle of that union campaign, if anybody can kind of relate to, to an experience like that, it's something you never want to go through, but, but it typically is a representation of failure in leadership. And during that time, you know, while he was actually successful in regaining the organization's trust, 
Um, he, he also was investing time in me. So every week as an intern, he's meeting with me and teaching me about the metrics. You know, this is what safety is. This is what quality is. This is what delivery is. This is what inventory is. This is what productivity is. This is how you measure it. And um, that really stood out to me. And, and he said to me, say, hey, Shaq, look, you're, you're not going to remember all of these things, but um, the next time you hear it won't be the first time, right? And, and, and over, over time, you'll, you'll, you'll start to, you know, really understand the importance of those. So, you know, 16 years later, um, now, you know, you recognize why those things are the most important things to start with. And, and I'm forever grateful for, for that leader. So, you know, that, that was a, a, left a good impression in terms of, you know, what my role as a supply chain leader was. Um, following that, you know, I got an opportunity with, with General Electric coming out of school to, to join their operations management leadership program. So I, I did that for a couple of years. I actually came back to that site for a year and then I, I went off to Maine. Uh, I did a couple of rotations in Maine and had an opportunity to stay there to be the lean leader and quality manager for that site. You know, so that was really my, my first, what they call real job, but it was, it was, uh, it was, it was an off program role. But, you know, the cool thing about the rotational experience, particularly in, in the division that I was at in GE at the time is I was really surrounded by some of the best leaders in supply chain. I mean, if there was a hall of flame for supply chain, you know, some of these guys' names would be, you know, at the top of that list. And so I, I learned a lot about manufacturing supply chain early on. And I had some, early opportunities to, to lead, you know, people um, and people who had, you know, a lot more years of experience than me, um, a lot more years on the life of life than me. Um, and, and, and I learned a ton from that. And I was challenged a lot. I essentially, you know, continued to progress. But the reason why that first experience was important to me was because it gave me a milestone. So I set my sights on being a plant manager. You know, just about 10 years later, I was able to run a plant out in California, a, a pretty um, high tech sensor plant. And that was sort of the that close of my first chapter in my career. After that, I had an opportunity to come over to Ingersoll Rand, and and I spent the next five years at Ingersoll Rand. So I, I started leading materials management and SIOP for a few divisions within Ingersoll Rand, followed by another opportunity to run a larger, more complex manufacturing site with about 400 employees at that time. So five years later, really, the that chapter ended, and then I, I took on an opportunity, like I said, a little over a year ago, to come to SPX Flow and. A little beyond that, I have uh, two daughters, three and four years old, Charlotte and Cameron. I'm, I'm married uh, for the last uh, seven years. It'll be eight years um, in, in a couple months. Um, so, you know, still uh, still early in those those phases, but um, it, that's been a, a great experience and a great balance in my life. Um, and then in addition to that, I'm in the middle of an executive MBA program at Yale. You know, I find that leadership as a concept for people changes over time. It changes over their career. And it changes over their their functional experience. Can you talk to me about what you think it means to be a supply chain leader today? Who are they accountable to? What are they responsible for? In the in the very literal sense, you know, I, I see supply chain leaders as accountable to three different stakeholders. And and actually, I think anyone who you know earns the right to call themselves a leader within an organization particularly a public company has um, an obligation to three different stakeholders and, and those stakeholders are customers right you know, the, the folks who are actually paying you and you know who you who you really exist to serve um and the second one is are your employees um you know the the, the, the people who actually add a value within your operation to be able to fulfill those customers on um, requirements and then you know particularly for um, public companies but Outside of that, then I would say shareholders. The key as a supply chain leader is your ability to balance and navigate through all three of those things. Particularly within supply chain, we've evolved from this period of time where 
your leaders were very internal internally focused right it was batching queue manufacturing it was how do i get the most efficiency out of my processes and that's really evolved over the over the last decade and a half to two decades to something that is much more i'll say balanced within that triangle but i think it became balanced because there became a, a greater emphasis on both the customer as well as on the employee so what does it take to get it right what does it take to be a remarkable supply chain leader to manage all of that balance continued learning i think it takes continued learning i think it takes um you know supply chain leaders to to step back and, and recognize that they are only supply chain leaders because that's that's the function that they chose right but they're business leaders at the end of the day and we as supply chain leaders need to be able to sit side by side with commercial leaders side by side with product management you know side by side with human resources and 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 the technology organizations and it's really understanding that you know you provide an element of it but you need to be able to think about a company in totality Mishak tell us about your own journey towards supply chain excellence what does that mean for you as you've developed in your career you've shared some experiences knowing you a bit i know that you've also got bigger ambitions as well so talk to us about that journey because i knew i wanted to run a plant and i was i was still fairly young um i'm still young i think but i was i was i was younger at the time you know i didn't have you know i wasn't i wasn't married i didn't have children um i had way more flexibility with my time Yeah, I made a conscious decision to just say, "Hey, look, I'm I'm going to make the moves that I needed to make to be able to achieve this milestone." And I might sacrifice some things personally now because I have the ability to do it and I know that's not going to last forever. And and so, you know, I I did an operations leader role, I did a lean leader and quality manager role, I did a materials manager role. Some of these locations weren't necessarily the places that I, you know, I would have um, you know, really said, "Hey, personally, I want to be there," but the opportunities were there. And so Every time an opportunity came up to go take on one of those roles, you know, I was yeah, you know, I raised my hand, I was willing to go do it. And that gave me, you know, really good challenging experiences and it gave them to me quickly. So for my first 10 years leading up to running a plant, you know, I probably moved about four or five times, but I never went to go ask for that role. There was always, you know, just when you thought that you had your arms around something and it was going well, you started to see some results. A leader saw something in you and said, "Hey, I I need help over here because you know what you what you you know about supply chain is we're not short of problems right and we're not short of the need for leaders to go take on those problems particularly in places where maybe everyone doesn't want to go so the opportunities were um bountiful in that in that sense and 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 so i i kind of continue to take on those experiences and you know if you think about a learning curve um this is also something that i talk about a lot now is you know you start within a role and that was what was nice about the rotational program it was every 6 months you were taken on a new challenge so you became trained to be able to take on a challenge learn the people learn the process make a real impact because you had to do it cuz time was going to end right so you I came into these roles even though it didn't have an end date I went in with the same level of intention I wanted to make sure that I connected with the people because I knew that I couldn't do anything without them. I wanted to make sure that I understood the process which, you know, again, you know that that those are the problems to then solve and and that's also what fed my mechanical engineering brain. And and then really, you know, went one about, you know, the business of trying to make an impact, trying to make something substantially better than how I found it. And you know, through that through those experiences, you get to a place where right when you're about to, you know, sustain it for longer, 
you then go to another location and you go do it again. So, so your learning journey continues to grow, right? It continues to build on itself. Um, you know, I, I tend to say, hey, it's really difficult after three years to, to see problems in the same way. You know, you really need a different set of challenges and doesn't necessarily mean you need to leave the location, doesn't necessarily mean you need to leave the company, but you probably need a different role. Like if you wanna to continue to grow and progress at the rate that you can, because that learning curve goes like this and it starts to plateau. Right, it just it just naturally does, and it's really difficult to challenge yourself the same way. So that's part of that journey. And, and then you know, when I got to the place where I was running a plant, I felt I felt equipped to do it. Right before that, though, I, I called a little bit of an audible, and I was having conversations with leaders who essentially said, "Hey, so you're ready to run a plant? Let's talk about it." And I was just I was unsure of myself, and I just say, "Look, I, I feel like I need to do something different. I don't know what it is, but I just I just really feel like I need to do something different." And, you know, shortly after those conversations, I got an opportunity to go lead lean manufacturing across the, across the Americas region within the division that I was in. So it was, you know, two dozen plants, um, you know, broadly across, you know, the Americas, you know, North America, a few within Mexico and Puerto Rico region. And it was, it was the best role that I, I've had, bar none, you know, to date even. It was, it was, a, it was the most enjoyable role because you know, I had the opportunity to, to spend time within the processes of all these sites. And I was teaching, you know, people everywhere from the hourly workforce to the staff about lean and, and helping them understand basic concepts of lean. You know, I was helping each of these plants um, develop strategies and visions for their value streams. And then, you know, day to day, week to week, coaching lean leaders on how to overcome the hurdles to achieve those. It was just a lot of fun. And, and I think it's probably the place where I've, I've made you know, some of the biggest impacts and, and lasting impacts. Um, it, it also gave me an opportunity to go back to sites like the one in Maine that, that I spent time in and revisit some things that, you know, I did that I said, hey, if I knew what I know now, <laughs> I, I consider doing it differently and, and, um, and certainly did. So made a lot of impact and I learned a lot. You know, I had some really great leaders, both from like people leaders, but then also like technical lean leaders that, you know, I learned a lot of core lean principles about, um, you know, from again, you know, people who are maybe one generation removed um, in terms of the learning from, you know, the leaders of the two of the production system and the founders of the two of the production system, right? So those are some unique experiences, but it wasn't, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have happened if I, if I didn't kind of take a step back and really challenge and say like, hey, I need something else. The other really cool thing that it did for me was it gave me an opportunity to observe 24 different plant managers in their styles before I became one. Right, so it gave me an opportunity to see, you know, which plant managers lead in certain ways and what the outcome of that is. Um, it gave me insight into, you know, what's the views within the, the corporate leadership team about that site and, and about those leaders. And so I, I saw a lot of cause and effect and I was able to add some things to my toolkit and I was able to say, hey, look, I'm never gonna do that, right? Uh, so that was, that was just such a great set of experiences that got me to being a, being a, being a plant manager. And, and I, when I say it closed the chapter for me or that first chapter for me, GE, particularly again at the time and the division that I was in, really taught me some, some core operational operation skills, right? I really, really gained them, I really solidified them. When I made the transition to Ingersoll Rand, I was able to one, apply some of those skills, but Ingersoll Rand did a really nice job during that period of time of building out their business operating system. So, you know, I got a really good base foundation within manufacturing and operations. And then I was able to really take that and, and start to build out a standard business operating system. Because the difference between GE and Ingersoll Rand is GE is such a massive company. 
each one of those business units really functioned differently. They function like their own companies, right? Within Ingersoll Rand, they were making this transition at the time from being more of a holding company to an operating company. And I got to be a part of that. And that, that was, that was um, a great experience. And, you know, it also taught me a lot about um, leadership, right? They did, they invested a lot in terms of this concept of servant leadership. And I got to, you know, see firsthand the chairman of that company who I hold in very high regard um, and the way that he coached and the way that he taught people and the way that he thought about leadership. And those things stuck with me and, and I was able to, to, to really learn a lot. And again, I think contribute a lot in a couple of different roles there. Um, it also gave me an opportunity to lead the biggest organization that I had. So, you know, within the plant manager role is 400 employees and, you know, several layers of leadership. So it really tested me. It really tested, you know, my skills in terms of my ability to, you know, coach and develop my leaders to be leaders. Uh, versus, you know, actually coaching on the process side. So I started to find a lot of balance in that role as well. Um, then finally coming into SPX Flow, this is again, you know, my current chapter within within my journey. Um, it, it allows me to take, you know, the foundation that I got in General Electric, you know, the skills around, you know, business operating systems and, and leading and developing in a business operating system in Iran, and then go apply that. You know, SPX Flow is a smaller company, a billion and a half dollars in revenue currently, um, you know, just over 5,000 employees. And I'm in a position where I'm now, you know, reporting into the office of the company. So I, I now have the ability to make a significantly larger impact across the company, right? Across, you know, this, this public faith in company because of those building blocks and the foundation. And, you know, it, it helps me solidify, you know, my thoughts in terms of what a, what a supply chain leader is in, in, in terms of me saying like, yeah, so, so you know, I, I built functional expertise within supply chain. Um, but, but I really try to think about this from a broad business perspective and make sure that there's nothing that I'm doing that's in conflict to the results of the company else. You mentioned a couple of times about significant impacts that you had the opportunity to make throughout your supply chain journey so far. Why don't you tell us about one? What, what's one that really stands out in your mind as particularly special or the most remarkable transformation work that you've done? So, so one of them goes back to me leading lean across the Americas during the time that I was in that position within General Electric. The impact that we were able to make during that time was, was broad because that was an opportunity where, you know, across multiple sites within a division, you know, we were able to go into sites that had a very traditional batching queue way of manufacturing and help them do a couple of things. One, develop a strategy and, and, and learn the basics around value stream mapping to be able to see the problem, see the waste, and actually have a plan to go do something with it. We were able to help them connect lean and their approach towards lean to their normal goals and financial metrics, which may sound simple, but it's actually not that intuitive. You know, Typically at that time, when we were having conversations about lean manufacturing, it felt like it was this thing in addition to achieving my metrics. And during the time that I was in that role, you know, I think we did a really nice job at not just transforming the processes, but actually changing the mindset to say, hey, this is all integrated, right? You know, the sites have productivity targets year over year, particularly in a business like that one where the margins are very thin, you know, productivity, you know, year over year, you know, needed to be a, a core part of the strategy. And we were able to not just achieve productivity through transformation of manufacturing lines from batching queue to flow to lines that flowed in, in, in a single piece flow fashion, but we were also able to reduce cycles and compress cycles, which also improved on time delivery. 
the thing that I loved about that experience was it gave me the opportunity to make that impact in short cycle, 24 hour to five day businesses, as well as long cycle, which were engineering to order businesses. And it really helped me kind of learn a lot about the toolkit and also apply a lot in the toolkit. The other example that I'll give was right after that role, was, which was in my first plant manager role. That one was important to me because it, as I mentioned, you know, I really wanted to get to a plant manager position and be effective at it. I didn't want to just go check a box of running a plant. That wasn't what I was interested in. And that plant was in a tough position. You know, financially, we weren't doing that great. You know, leaders you know, of the division were in that plant pretty consistently. And they were, they were at a place of trying to make some tough decisions about the future of it. And when I arrived at the plant, typically what I found, and, and this was very, this was no different, was it was, it was filled with great people, right? Great people who worked really hard, who wanted to win, who wanted to do a great job. And it was always interesting to me that, you know, as many problems that, you know, we experience in so many manufacturing plants across the globe, you always find that the people within the site, like they, they, they're not apathetic. They really want to do well. They're working really hard. Many of them are making real sacrifices personally, but from their families, from their children, they're, they're missing you know, important events that they don't get back. Yet somehow they're not winning. I find that that, that typically becomes a, a gap in leadership. So what, what I was able to experience over the time in that plant was you know, a transformation from a site that was losing where on-time delivery wasn't doing great, where their quality you know, was not doing, doing too great, where they were not able to successfully fulfill commitments around some of the samples and some of the engineering work and new product launches to site that, that actually got, had their arms around that. You know, delivery got better. You know, we were able to save a significant amount of money in terms of reducing internal defects and also improve the experience for customers. The thing that underscored, you know, my experience there was I had leaders six months to a year into it saying, hey, you know, I used to dread getting on the phone with this site. And now it's a pleasure talking to you guys. You know, we very rarely had leaders, you know, during my time there coming in specifically just for an operations review. And yeah, I was proud of what the team was able to accomplish. But a lot of it really came down to clear prioritization, clear focus, being able to be very clear on these are the things that we're going to work on and we're all going to work on these things. And we're not going to work on those things yet. And, and, if we, and if we think that we're making the wrong decision, let's talk about it and let's collectively make a different decision. But it's really around priority and not just priority in individual silos, but priority across the functions to make sure that, again, our efforts are, are yielding positive results. Was there ever a time during that experience that you felt like it wasn't working? That maybe you, maybe you were failing, maybe the process improvements were failing. Yeah, um, often, <laughs> often. Um, it was absolutely some time. You know, there, there were periods of time, particularly for this product that had a, a very, very, very tight tolerance, had a lot of sensitivity where, um, you know, we'd have real customer issues and it, and it might be a single customer and that, that single customer may not even be a significant portion of our volume. Um, but we were significant enough to them that they required a lot of our attention. And during those times, it just, it wasn't fun at all. The level of intensity really picks up. The level of attention you have to put on that specific issue picks up. And it really makes it difficult at times to step back and look at it holistically and say, hey, you know what? We are doing better as an organization. You know, this problem really hurts right now. 
and it's taking a lot of our resources, but you can't discount the fact that that broadly we're doing better. And as leaders of supply chain, we're almost trained that way, right? We're trained to go focus in on the problems and, and we don't really celebrate much on the wins. You know, that's something that, you know, even personally, I, you know, I, I try to make a point of, of trying to do a better job at and also put people on my team who are better at that so that I make sure that if it's a blind spot for me, I know it's still happening, you know, and, and I would say in the role that I have now, you know, we're able to, we're able to see that happen. But, you know, look, I'll, I'll even tell you in, in recent times with COVID-19 and, and the um, experiences that we're having with that. So, so there's definitely times where I step back even now and I say, man, we're not even where I wanted to be. I really expected us to be further along. And, you know, it's important to have people around you, both peers, both leaders that you work for, as well as people on your team that are able to help you at times when you're in it to step back and say, yeah, but look how far we've come. So you've mentioned a couple of times the impact that your team has on you and how when building a team, you look for people who maybe fill in some of your blind spots. Tell us about your approach to diversity when it comes to building not only a team of employees, but also your network, the people that you go to for support, for insights, ideas, inspiration. What sort of things do you look for when building a diverse team around you? At this stage, I reflect on the last several teams that I have, and I feel proud to say that every one of them from the time that I arrived to the time that you know, I exited that role were, were not just high performing teams, but they were significantly more diverse than when I entered the role. While I would say that it was intentional, it, it was intentional, but I, I, wasn't, I wasn't necessarily putting, you know, ethnicity first. I was really genuinely trying to find the best candidate. And similar to most leaders, I was looking within my network and looking in other people's networks that I have and fortunate enough that I have a very diverse network of people. When I think about diversity in terms of diversity in thought, you know, I really do look for people that fill in the gaps that I have. For folks who are, are listening and, and can't physically see me, um, I'm African-American, 38 years old, and I've been in the industry for 16 years. So the period of time where particularly in kind of that consumer industrial space, um, growing up in manufacturing supply chain, um, it wasn't a very diverse environment for leaders. I've had some really fortunate experiences. You know, the first leader that I talked to at the beginning of this podcast is another African-American man who, you know, went to North Carolina A&T. He, you know, just, just happened to be really, really good. But I, I could have ended up in a plant with someone else who, who didn't see the potential that I had. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I had uh, braids in my hair when I, when I was home. Interning, you know, I um, I used to wear an earring, right? You know, I was, you know, I was, um, I wasn't even 21 at the time, and you know, there's there's a lot of things about even how I looked at that time, and you know, what I knew that, you know, depending on who you were as a leader, you may or may not have invested in me. You may not have, may or may not have seen that potential. Made a ton of mistakes when I was early in my career. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to have a leader who won saw past those early images. And, and I say saw, saw past it like it was problematic. I, I should say a leader who, who wasn't distracted by, by things that he may, he may be unfamiliar with and, and really looked at who I was as a person and then took real effort, even during a very difficult time, even during an extremely stressful time for him, took effort to invest in me. My journey would be different. You know, I can't say I wouldn't be here, but my journey would be substantially different if I didn't have that leader invest in me, right? 
but over the years, you know, I, I found myself as I've, you know, been very, again, fortunate to be around several leaders who, who gave me opportunities, you know, within GE, they do a great job at executive leadership development and training. I found myself to be, you know, the only African-American in the room and often the youngest um, in most environments that I was in. It taught me that I was capable of competing at a high level. But it, but it also told me that we had a lot of work to do. So I, I've spent a lot of time recruiting, um, you know, diverse employees, you know, developing diverse employees and investing a lot of personal time. And then that's something that's important to me. It's really around making a bigger impact in that space. It, it, I'm very, very intentional. And it's very important to me that we change the landscape of what these industries look like, not just because it's the right thing to do, um, but because I, I really do think that we're losing out on a, on a significant population of potential people who can contribute in great ways to our industries and in great ways to our companies, simply because um, we're, we're, not, we're not tapping into all parts of, of the world and the country. So if, you, if your network of people, as you step back and you look at it, isn't as diverse, first of all, like any problem, you have to acknowledge that. And you have to deal with how that feels and you have to deal with the reasons why that might be. Um, and then you have to go do something about it, right? If it matters to you. And if it doesn't, hey, hey that, that's okay too, but, but be honest with yourself <laughs> around it um, and sort of accept it. Talk to us about how you approach supply chain improvements. So you've got this team, this very capable, diverse, high-performing team and you identify a major issue. What does it look like in Meshach's office? Well, let's say on Meshach's webcam these days, when that issue comes up and that team puts their heads together for the first time on it. It really starts with having a clear understanding of what the problem is and why is it a problem. Many other things start to become much more clear when you start there. In the context of defining what a problem is and why is it a problem, it goes back to saying, hey, supply chain leaders are business leaders. You know, what is the business impact that you're trying to make? Right? What's the impact to this problem? Because you'll never run out of problems to solve. If we think we got them all, then we'll, at a minimum, raise the bar a little bit. And the reason why I start there is really because I've learned over, over mistakes. I've learned over you know, spinning wheels and burning calories on problems that you know, didn't necessarily need to be my biggest priority. Or you know, once we solved them and felt like it was a great victory, we didn't see the, the needle move and the business of being applied. Meshach, it seems like supply chain has come into the mindset of the public more so than ever. I noticed during this whole... COVID-19 situation that we're dealing with, supply chain was mentioned on the news all the time. It was mentioned on social media. It's common place to talk about now. And for many people, supply chain's becoming a, a dinner table conversation when they've never talked about it before. So those that are outside of our industry that aren't leading supply chain, they still know what it is now. What's a common myth that you think is out there around supply chain right now that you would like to debunk? Sure, I'm, I'm smiling from air to air, right? It's you know, all, all the supply chain people feel vindicated. Like, you know, every time you ask me what I do, um, now you get it, right? So w one of the myths that I would debunk about supply chain is that supply chain is not this boring niche thing, you know, where it's, you know, your, 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 your dad or your dad's dad's factory 
you know, or this dusty old warehouse. Supply chain exists everywhere. And, and spoiler, it always has. The supply chain disruption that COVID-19 is causing around the world, while it's certainly challenging and disappointing and frustrating, it's also fascinating for many of us in supply chain, because at least with my story, that interaction, that connectivity, that understanding that when I go get something off the shelf, there was thousands of people that helped to bring it there. That's what brought me to supply chain. That's what fascinated me about it. And now we're seeing that most beautiful, most fascinating, most compelling strength of this concept of supply chain be its Achilles heel, its biggest weakness, lack of resilience, lack of agility, lack of flexibility. All of those things are being exposed now through COVID-19. And I find it just so fascinating and frustrating all at once because the most beautiful aspect of it is the part that is making it so difficult for us to manage now. And supply chain leaders all over the world are waking up thinking about this, I think, every day. It's making it more competitive. It's really rewarding people who've been committed to putting building blocks in place um, leading up to this. Nobody really foreshadowed that COVID-19 would happen right now. Certainly there's conversations around the indication of it. And, you know, that's, I, I won't talk about that, but in the sense of companies that have been committed to the journey of compressing their cycle, of increasing the value add, of improving their turns, but improving their turns specifically for the, the sake of efficiency of a supply chain, simplifying their processes in a way where they can flex capacity up and down, applying automation in the right ways and not automation in a, in a batching queue inflexible way. Companies who have been investing in that over the last decades or so are now, I would say, reaping the rewards of that. Other companies who aren't as far down the journey will find that they're struggling a little bit more. So that's what I mean when I say it, the landscape's more competitive now. And, and, and it's not just within the, you know, within the industrial space, I would say in every industry, um, put retail in, in, in that space, right? You know, there, there are industries now getting disrupted and, and the view may be that it was because of COVID-19, but I would say that, hey, the gasoline has been poured, right? And it's been this pour of gasoline. COVID-19 was absolutely the match that ignited it. But this, is, this has been the condition for quite some time. And, you know, if you don't believe it, I, I would challenge to say that, hey, if, if you're really struggling right now, you probably weren't performing to your customers at, at, a, at a high level before. You probably didn't have great defect levels at, at, you know, at different times. You probably weren't able to flex up and down, you know, as volume fluctuated over these last couple mini, you know, shifts in, in, in the industry and in the volume. So, those are always indications. And, and if your competitors were able to, and you weren't, then this is going to expose that significantly greater. You know, the other thing that I would say, and this is more from a broader business perspective, and not just directly within supply chain, is, is, is really testing, you know, what I would say the, the, um, the values and the fabric of, of companies and leaders, right? Because, you know, now you have a situation where there's a significant amount of unemployment across the country. And, and, and that, that is a really unfortunate thing. You know, I really hate to hear that. 
Um, I, I really want to applaud some of the companies that are able to really stand strong during this time of, hey, we have a great cash position right now. And, you know, we're willing to sacrifice a little cash to be able to know that this too shall pass. And our people are our greatest asset, right? You know, I applaud SPX Flow as an example, you know, for our ability and our company's ability to really be able to hold tight. And again, you know, the, the company has done all the right things leading up to this place, fortunately, to, to be able to then say, hey, you know what? We can survive this time. Let's continue to do the things that we know are the right things to do, right? Let's continue to drive, you know, good operational excellence. But, you know, we want to be equipped to serve when this is over. You know, we've seen, you know, companies overreact during the, you know, the recession, you know, back in the 2008, 2009, 2010 period. Um, you know, we see companies now, you know, overreact. And this goes back to the conversation that we had around that triangle of stakeholders, right? You have shareholders and investors, you have employees, right? And you have your customers. And, and it, the goal is to balance in the center of those. Even during crisis, it becomes significantly more difficult to do but it's still the goal. And, and I, would, I would challenge that, you know, if you, if you made significant cuts to your employee base, um, specifically to try to maintain your profitability, um, and, and you weren't willing to possibly take some hits in the short term, then you, you probably were out of balance with employees. And, you know, the story's not done being written, but we'll see how you fare on the other end of that when, when COVID passes. And when demand starts to come back and when the customer needs change, we'll see. So I see for our podcast recording today, Mishak, you're sitting in front of a bookshelf that is full of books. I imagine that represents lots and lots of hours of self-development. What's the latest book that you've read? Any suggestions for our listeners? You know, early on, I have several books on lean manufacturing and, and some of the really standard ones. And, you know, when I was deploying lean and learning about that, I, I really filled my shelf with, with those books over the last, I'll say, you know, five years or so. I, I've really been reading a lot more books around helping me be more introspective. Things like willpower and habits and seven habits of, of highly, highly effective people. You know, that, in fact, that's the, that's the last book that I reread. A couple of other folks that, you know, I, I listen to and follow. Uh, one of them is a, a gentleman named Eric Thomas, and he's somewhat informally known as E.T., the hip-hop preacher. But you know, he, he talks a lot about really giving your full effort towards things, and he talks a lot about being prepared up front so that you, you are ready when things like COVID-19 hit, right? You know, so he, ta he talks about you know, thinking ahead and being very intentional. Um, and really, in a lot of ways, leaving on a, on on a field. He's a he's a top motivational speaker. But I, you know, I, I really listen to him and and admire his story as someone that's worth checking out because he he is a representation that two things. One, we all have the ability to achieve greatness. None of us are that far away from it, actually. A any one of us with with real intent, you know, and certainly some support and a network of people are a decade away from, you know, achieving something substantially greater than where you're at now, right? We all have that ability. The other part of it is the advantage of adversity. So the adversity advantage is another book that's on my shelf. But, you know, the basic premise around that is, is not just that adversity can help you in terms of achieving greatness. Um, we all kind of know that. But if you take a step back and you were to do any kind of study around people who, in whatever way you define greatness, did at that top, there's real adversity in their story. So that doesn't say that 
adversity is helpful for her achieving greatness, it, it actually would indicate that it's necessary. And that's a very different thing because if you recognize that adversity is necessary for achieving greatness versus a, yeah, adversity is a good thing, then you'll, you'll put a different lens and a different frame on the challenges that you have, right? They may suck, they may be painful, right? But it is literally necessary in order for you to achieve greatness. And, and so, you know, that's pretty impactful to me. The, the other um, person that I follow and I've listened to for a while is Tim Ferriss. So Tim Ferriss, he, you know, kind of became, you know, known for four-hour work week um, and then kind of went on to build a brand beyond that. You know, he, had, he has had a podcast for quite some time. What I love about Tim's podcast is that he brings on people who are really at the top of their field in every industry, right? Anywhere from LeBron James and, and his coach to um, some of the top business leaders. And he's done, he does a really, really nice job at asking them thoughtful questions and digging deeper and probing to get his audience the information on what specifically were those things that differentiated you. And punchline that's kind of existed for quite some time that he doesn't even have to say is there's so much commonality across these people in terms of the ones that are at the top, at the top of their field. Um, there's so much commonality there that, that uh, it, it's actually pretty encouraging. And so for him, he's kind of brought his followers and listeners on this journey from how to get the most efficiency out of your time, right? How to be most effective with your time. And then when you have that time, how to spend it, right? And how to, how to spend it in a way, you know, that, that kind of propels you to greatness. So those, those are two that I listen to quite often. You know, Bishak, there's a, a theme that continues to resonate with me about you. So we haven't known each other for very long, um, and we've not ever had the opportunity to work together. But every time I talk to you, there is a sense of passion for helping people to be their best. You even wrote it on some of the notes coming into the podcast. You said, I'm passionate about helping people be at their best personally and professionally. And that has always resonated with me about you. Every time you've talked about your team, building a team, having a diverse team, seeking input from people, tackling problems, even when you're in the midst of an improvement and you think it's going well, oftentimes we'll have a conversation and you'll say, hey, here's what's going well. And then immediately you'll start focusing on where do we need improvement? And that has just always really resonated with me about you. Where did you get that? Where did that come from? This, this nature to always look to empower people and seek them out and give them a platform to be their best. You know, I, I appreciate you saying that and I appreciate that, that observation. Um, and, and it's very true. I, I am extremely passionate about helping people realize their full potential and be at their best. And the way that I got to that place Believe it or not, I, I used to be very shy and, and, um, and very introverted. And over time, I grew to appreciate people. Right? I, I just became you know, just fascinated by people and how they think. And you know, one of the things that I, I noticed to be consistently true is that people start off right, at, at birth at some place where they're, where they're free and they're a kid and, and they're they can do whatever they want. They can, you know, they, they, their imagination runs wild. And over that timeline, at some point, 
quote unquote reality hits them, society hits them, and they they start to be much more practical. And that's important, right? That's important. You know, you do have to exist within you know the within society, but I find that people start to drift away from what they're very passionate about and, and oftentimes end up following a path that you know, either other people that they value or um, you know, kind of the broader kind of world of society you know, influences them to be. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm part of that, I'm part of that group of people, right? I, but but I, I haven't really met many people who are an exception to this. And, and then at some point during that lifeline, and, and most times it's beyond the age that I'm at now, they start finding their way back to that thing, right? And, and so it, it, told, it told me that, you know, there, there's this period of time and it's a pretty significant and impactful period of time of people's lives where they're not really fulfilling their passion in, in a way that they could or should if they had been able to be more intentional about it or if they were sort of encouraged there or if they kind of stayed focused on it. And so, you know, I just enjoy helping people think through that and, and reconnect back to those things. I, I find it tremendously rewarding. You know, I, I, I get really energized by the feedback I get from other folks as they reach back out to me when I, you know, end up moving on to different roles and into different states around the impact that that's had on their life, both professionally and personally. And it's just really rewarding. It's really become my why, right? You know, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I certainly want to do personally, um, and I and I am achieving personally, and and I will over time. But but the impact that that I can have on people in a real way, um, it has just become you know something that's substantially important to me. And you know, as as my daughters get older, you know, my my one true wish for them is for them to remain free, uh, remain free in their thinking, uh, remain free in the choices that they make. And I want them to be great people. Um, but I also, and I also want them to um, be very free in, in their thinking and the decisions that they make. Um, because to be honest, I think a, a significant portion of that shift um, has to do with our parents um, and the influences that our parents have. I, I was fortunate enough that my, my, my mom gave me a lot of liberty. She gave all, all of my siblings a lot of liberty. The, the one thing that she always asks is, um, did you do your best? And you know, that's something that's really resonated with me for the rest of my life, which is, you know, stepping back and really thinking about it in an honest way of, did you do your little best? And, you know, she was certainly wise beyond her years. Um, and I'm sure she knew what she meant when she was saying it. But if you can honestly say you've done your best, then there's literally nothing else you could do. Um, if you can't say that you've done your best, then you should do your best next time. Great wisdom there. Thank you for sharing that, Mishak. All right. Thanks for listening to The Supply Chain Show. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you stream your content. If you want to know more, check out my website, crystallee.net. Until next time.